Hello, and welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum, a podcast to encourage the modern day woman in her vital role in shaping society. I'm your host, Tabitha Walter, the political director of Eagle Forum, and I'm joined by Eagle Forum's president, Colleen Holcomb, today. Hello. Hi, it's always fun to have you on. It's always fun to, to be on, and it's fun to be with you, Tabitha. Welcome back. Thank you. Well, today we're going to talk about a very niche topic, D.C. statehood. Now, this is something that actually comes up every year in Congress, but has gained popularity recently. In today's political climate, it's mostly Democrats who want this to happen, and now that they control the House and have a small majority in the Senate, they think they have a chance to pass this. The problem is, because it hasn't had a serious vote in a while, many people are lost on the details of why this is a bad idea. Even I had to refresh myself on the facts. As many of you know, Colleen is well-versed in law and politics, being an attorney and former Eagle Forum executive director. So she is going to give us all the ins and outs of DC statehood. So Colleen, let's go back in history. What were the intentions of creating Washington DC as something other than a state? Well, any of our history wonks out there, uh, history enthusiasts should read Federalist 43 of the Federalist Papers if they're interested in the history of Washington, D.C. It was written by John Adams, um, and it goes through the reasons that the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, wanted to make D.C. a small area. Um, and the biggest reason is because at that time it was envisioned that the federal government would be small and that states would really have that power would be concentrated in the states, which of course is what we as conservatives would like to still see. Of course, you know, that's not really how things have unfolded and that's certainly not how people in, in DC want things to unfold. But the idea was to have a small, it was supposed to be no larger than 10 square miles at large um, place where the federal government could be centralized but that would not be beholden to any state interest so that the state interests could come and debate and could come allocate resources according to democratic processes without the influence of from the place where they were meeting, which what they were concerned about to put it simply was a swamp forming somewhere. So that's why it was limited. And that was why uh, DC's powers were limited. DC wasn't given um, representation in Congress. And, and as we see, the poor fathers probably had no idea how, how prescient their concerns really were. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. And now we're dealing with the swamp on a regular basis. So, you know, you're totally right in that. Since Washington, D.C. is explicitly laid out in the Constitution, does that mean statehood would be unconstitutional? Well, yes, it would be unconstitutional to make DC proper a state. Um, we can talk a little bit more about some of the proposals that have been floated to get around that provision, but yes, absolutely. To make Washington DC as it's currently constituted a state would be facially unconstitutional. Yeah, so, so then let's talk about the real reason that Democrats are so invested in making DC a state. You know, I've seen the DC license plates that have the quote, taxation without representation. And I mean, that's pretty convincing, especially to DC residents. However, Democrats are looking way beyond that. We are talking about a whole different makeup in Congress. So what would that what would those dynamics look like if, if this were to pass? Well, you're absolutely right. And of course, the tax, no taxation without representation is compelling to anybody who's concerned about liberty, who's concerned about 
um, having their their point of view represented in a in a representative democracy. Um, but um, the, of course, we know that would change the dynamics significantly because DC is the seat of the federal government. So, it, and it is you know, historically, you can look back. I think in this last election, they voted over ninety percent for Joe Biden. So, the, it, DC is absolutely a Democratic stronghold. And regardless of any of the the partisan, you know, the more divisive issues. It stands to reason that it always would be because the seat of government is going to want larger government. They're going to have to want larger government for the, uh, you know, for the region's own uh, sustainability and prosperity. So of course, that's going to be a region that's going to want the, lar the party of the larger government. So to add two senators to the Senate, who that would be a permanent uh, two Democrat senators and at least one uh, member of Congress. Right. We don't want government encroaching on our rights. And we've already seen that with Congress over the past few years and the bills that they're passing. So, uh, yeah, we, we don't want that on a bigger scale. Now, there is a bill that passed the House that is trying to weasel around the unconstitutionality of that, which is called H.R. 51. And it doesn't exactly make D.C. a state. It changes the parameters of it. It would designate two square miles that would be called the Capitol, and inside that area, it would consist of the U.S. Capitol complex, the White House, the Supreme Court, the principal federal monuments, and the National Mall. The rest of D.C. would be left to the state of Washington, D.C. Now, is this something that could stand instead? Well, theoretically, it could. The idea, I think, could potentially be a good one, just in the abstract, taking all the political concerns out of it. Um, and I think it's not fair that they, they want to name it DC for uh, Douglas Commonwealth is what it would be, named after Frederick Douglass, who's one of my favorites. So that's certainly something that scored some points with me. Um, but the problem that you have then is we would have a constitutional crisis because of the 23rd Amendment, which gave to DC uh, the ability to have elector, to be represented by presidential electors. So now that Washington DC, however it's composed, even if it is that small piece of land, uh, still has presidential electors, and then who lives in that tiny little territory that would really only be the occupants of the White House. So then you would have the occupants of the White House constitutionally um, having, uh, being able to dictate electors. That would be a significant constitutional crisis. Um, as you mentioned, HR 51 is trying to get around this issue, issue through a legislative solution when really it, it can't do that. This has to be, this, there needs to be a change in the constitution if DC is in any way going to be reconstructed and in any way changed. Right. Yeah. I totally didn't think about the electors. And I mean, we know the huge mess that it was, you know, in this last election putting more electors on, especially, you know, with a heavy hand from the White House controlling these electors, goodness, like that, that's terrifying. So we, we definitely don't want that in our future. No, that's right. And all of these electoral issues do, you know, that's part of the reason I think that this position of no taxation without representation, it's definitely, we have sympathy for that position and it is a compelling slogan, but we just have to remember our founding fathers set the country up this way. The, the fact that people chose to move in there, it, it, that just is the way that it's comprised. And just to deal with that issue, um, 
I think anybody who's been in DC and has done any work in DC recognized as Justice, uh, the late Justice Scalia recognized when he was sitting on the DC circuit that it's, I, I can't remember the language he used, but to paraphrase really badly, it's crazy to think that those people living in DC don't have as much power, if not a lot more than the rest of the people in the country, because we know that proximity to members of Congress is, is incredibly powerful, possibly even more powerful than the ability to elect one con congressman and two senators where you are. So yeah. uh, there is great power in just living and being in DC. Um, right. And again, that's really the reason the, the founding fathers said we have to cut off that influence somehow. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Now, something that we aren't hearing a whole lot about this is how much it would actually cost. Now, I saw an article in the Washington Post that said it would cost DC alone, so just you know, just the District of Columbia, one billion dollars. But that doesn't include the whole national price tag. Uh, for instance, we would have a whole nother star on our flag, which sounds really teeny tiny. But when you think about it, it's a burden on businesses because businesses that sell the 50 star flag would be uh, out of their inventory. And so they would have to, you know, purchase the, the 51 state flag and um, who's going to bear the cost of that. So even if Congress was to, was to pass some kind of supplement for these businesses, say, um, who's paying for that? It's, it's our taxpayer dollars. It's uh, driving our nation further in debt. And then on top of that, you know, we'd probably be paying two more senators and a congressman or two. And then, and yeah. right, yeah, and their staff. And then the, the pot of money for the states who, who receive federal money will be divided up even more. So this is an ongoing expense. It's not just one and done. You know, when you think about it, will, will DC be offsetting some of these costs? They don't, uh, produce anything in DC. There's no manufacturing or farming or anything to give back. So when you think about that in, in the bigger picture, do you think that people know this information, that they're adequately, adequately getting this type of information from people who are really rooting for statehood? No, I don't think that. And I think most people don't realize what the cost is of anything the government does. You know, people think it's a great idea for the government. You know, of course, we want to protect freedom. We want people to have equal voting rights and those kinds of things. But of course, and all of those um, factors you mentioned are a significant concern. Um, on the funding issue, DC already gets a tremendously disproportionate share of federal resources. Um, I read, uh, there's a great article by one of our great friends at, um, at IWF, Inez Stepman, wrote a great article on the DC statehood issue. And I think she cited a statistic, I think it was at that point DC, and I think it was 2017, was spending $30,000 a year per student, significantly higher than the national average. Um, and there were, I think it was a 2005 study. So that's that's, that was a long time ago um, that indicated that was that DC was getting often three times as much for the various programs as other states were. 
So, so you know, already so much money and so much power is concentrated in DC and why? Because what is the industry they have to peddle? It's influence. So, and that influence perpetuates more influence. And that's again, exactly what the founding fathers sought to avoid in keeping DC limited and keeping it kind of a neutral space for the other states to come and, and divide resources on an, uh, a democratic basis. Right. Well, there is an, another idea that's been floated around called retrocession, where the majority of land in D.C. would return to Maryland and Virginia. So this has already happened once in the mid-1800s, not recently, obviously, but way back when. And then and they took uh, where Alexandria and Arlington are now, and it was retroceded to Virginia. So what do you think about this solution? Well, as a Virginia resident, I'd like to retrocede, but I'd like to give our portion back to DC and let Maryland take the whole thing. But no, I, and again, I think these are, it would be great to have these discussions in a nonpartisan environment. Of course, that's not the environment that we live in. Uh, but I think the problem with retrocession, now the proposal is because Virginia, um, part of that territory, right, that was DC at one time, was considered part of DC at one time, has come back to Virginia. Uh, there's talk about retroceding a portion back to Maryland. The problem is the Virginia tax, Virginia, or I'm sorry, the Maryland taxpayers don't want it. Um, I think I, the last poll that I saw, and there might be more recent polls, was 2016. Um, and it was only 22% of Maryland residents actually wanted that land. And then there's a con another constitutional question. You still have the issue with the 23rd amendment. So that would have to be resolved first. So these are all issues that are going to take a long time to resolve because that would have to go through the process of amending the constitution, not just through congressional fiat. It just can't be done without violating the constitution. But then you would have to answer the question, can a state be forced to take back land that they have given to the federal government? We know that the federal government takes land all the time, but can a state be forced to take back um, federal land that's been given to them? And, and that's just something we don't know. So that's going to require, again, a lot more constitutional evaluation. And I think it needs a lot more input from the voters and a lot more, I hope, truly intellectual discussion and analysis of um, of the important academic issues and not just partisan demands for two more senators for Democrats. Yeah, I, I think that goes to show that it's not just affecting DC residents. There are states around DC and you know it's essentially affecting the whole nation in, in a lot of different facets. So uh, just because it has you know DC in the name, it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't have anything to do with us. Right, that's permanently diluting every other state's potential representation. If you're adding two more senators who, who are representing a state who exists to support the federal government. So it just really doesn't make sense. Right, well, I mentioned HR 51 previously and uh, Eagle Forum had sent out an alert. Unfortunately, it passed along party lines and there's no word right now on if the Senate will take it up, up, but Chuck Schumer has already said that he hopes this is something that they can pass. You know, if he gets the chance, if he knows that he has the votes, he's definitely going to push it through. So in the meantime, before we see anything moving in the Senate, is there anything our listeners can do to fight against this issue? 
Well, I'm so thankful for our listeners because they are by definition engaged. So um, yes, absolutely. Of course, you need to continue to stay engaged with your senators and your representatives. Of course, we're paying specific attention to and special attention uh, to senators like Joe Manchin, those Democrats who are who understand that they're vulnerable in pretty purple states and who are coming up for reelection and understand that their views are really out of step with the people that they represent. Um, so in particularly our listeners in West Virginia, in Arizona, Kirsten Sinema is another one who has really recognized that, um, that what her party's encouraging her to do is not what uh, the people she represents want her to do. Um, something else that we're, this issue, as you mentioned, it's going to keep coming up. I was in your position, Tabitha, 10 years ago and it had been coming up for decades then. I, it's not going to stop, um, but, I also encourage you, of course, stay, not only stay engaged to be communicating with your representatives, but get some better ones, elect some better ones, get to work now. Um, we're seeing a lot of really great candidates emerge. So please help um, volunteer, go knock on doors, try to get some good um, representatives elected who will protect your freedoms, who will protect the integrity of your vote. Um, and also, and especially, you know, wherever you live, if you can vote for a conservative, do it. If you can help on a campaign, absolutely do it. If you can't do any of those things, or even if you can, it's always important to give money to, to support. We need to get money behind good conservative candidates so that we can protect our freedoms. And one place you can do that is to contribute to Eagle Forum PAC. And in the show notes, we'll put a, a link so that you can do that. We're, um, we're in the process of always revising our questionnaire to make sure that we're analyzing candidates and making sure that they know what they're facing when they go to DC and that they'll have the right answers when they have to vote on issues like this. Um, we use our questionnaire in some cases to even educate some of the people who are newcomers to the political process. Um, so if you're looking for candidates to support who have been thoroughly educated on how to defend your freedoms, please support candidates that are supported by Eagle Forum PAC or contribute to Eagle Forum PAC and we'll do the work for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you, Colleen. This is super informative. I can't wait to push out a lot of information throughout the week, uh, like the resources you talked about and just ways to engage our listeners more on this issue. So if you are listening to this podcast, this would be the perfect reason to sign up for our alerts at eagleforum.org. So if this starts to move in the Senate, you can take action right away. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, share with your friends, and leave us a review. You can find us on all the major social media outlets and at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.